Just a reminder, we have the uh, Red Cross CPR AED class on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. That's going to be at the CrossFit gym, uh, not the front building there at SEAL Security, but at the gym at, um, at 10 o'clock Saturday morning to wrap that up. Also, we have our annual congregational meeting uh, on Sunday at uh, immediately following the morning worship service. And a reminder that the Republican primary is coming up. Uh, early voting is the 18th to the 28th, and then the election is on March the 3rd. Also, the Chafer Conference is only four and a half weeks away. It is four weeks from this coming Monday. So we need some volunteers. I think it's going to be extremely well attended as we get closer more. Uh, enthusiasm is getting ginned up, so uh, that's going to be a great conference. I think everything is starting to come, uh, starting to come together. Cast your burden on the Lord, and He shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be shaken. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's a great promise in an election year, that we do not put our hope in men but in the Lord. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we are walking with the Lord, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, enjoying our relationship with Him, our participation with God in our spiritual life, our participation in His plan for human history and in his plan for our lives. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a tremendous privilege we have to serve you. Tremendous privilege we have to enjoy our relationship with you, to walk with you, to walk in the light, to walk in the word, to learn the word, to be here whenever we can in order to take in your word, to learn it, to understand it, assimilate it into our thinking, let it challenge us and transform us so that we can come to uh, be everything that you would uh, like us to be in terms of our spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, and that we can develop all of the different uh, assets that you have provided for us in our spiritual life. Father, we pray for each one here. We pray for those in this congregation, those whose lives we impact, and we pray that God the Holy Spirit would use our lives and our testimonies as a challenge to people to follow the truth of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1, and we're coming toward the end of this great chapter. Uh, one of the things that we should recognize, I think all of you know this, but it needs to be said, is that there were no chapter divisions in the original. There were no verse divisions. And so as we come to the last three verses in what we see as chapter 1, it smoothly flows into the central message of the epistle, which is to beware of false teachers. 
And so this is going to be a major focus in the next chapter dealing with uh, the false teachers and their impact on the congregation. And see, at that time, false teaching was yet future. By the time Jude wrote, which is a parallel epistle, uh, they have arrived. They're still here. They haven't gone anywhere. If you doubt it, go home, turn on your television, look and see some of the programs that are on. And just about uh, 95 or 98% of them are communicating heresy and false doctrine. Some of them do get the gospel right, but after that, it's all wrong. And they influence so many people. They influence everybody negatively because they're not teaching the truth. They influence some people negatively because they're just teaching lies. They're teaching heresy. They're teaching things that aren't biblically true. And they, and they influence others negatively because they're just a turnoff. Uh, people look at that and just see them as hucksters, as those who are trying to make a, a fast buck off of people's religious lives, and it's it's just a tragedy, and they are a blemish on the body of Christ. So we need to also be aware because there are many out there that you know, that I know, that have been with us, been part of us, and have gone out. They have been deceived by false teaching. Some are pastors, some are those who have been believers for many years, and then for one reason or another, they get distracted and they go into some sort of false teaching. They get caught up in a lot of very strange uh, doctrines that are prohibited in Scripture, arguing about uh, many different things that are actually identified and listed by Paul to his, in his epistles to, to Peter. So... We need to focus on the truth, and that's what we come to as we get into our study here, uh, some review in order to set the stage here a little more for what's happening in the last uh, two or three verses, three verses in, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> in Second Peter. So I've titled the lesson, The Truth, uppercase with the article definite article in English, the truth. It's not a truth. It's not simply truth. It is the truth as it's communicated in the scripture. We'll see why I emphasize that. But there is only one truth, and that is God's truth. And God is truth himself. He embodies truth. Truth is what God thinks. Truth is that which God created and designed. Truth is to, and when we align to the truth, we align to reality. Anything that is not aligned to God's thinking, not aligned to the truth, is living in some sort of fantasy world. And that's why I've entitled this The Truth Versus Myth, Fable, or Fantasy. And there are a lot of people out there who are living to one degree or another so divorced from reality in myths that have been made up in their own little fantasy world, uh, living on various fables. Some of these have managed to be systematized into, into cult, cults, into various uh, religious sects. We have some significant uh, leaders in uh, the Senate who are completely deceived by false teaching and by error and by the fables of Joseph Smith. And how in the world we can trust somebody walking in such self-deception, 
I don't know, whether they agree with us a lot or not. You know, they're still deceived by, uh, by what, they are, what they are following. In, first, or in 2 Peter 1.12, Peter states as he's moving towards this, this conclusion based on what he has said about how this uh, believer grows on the basis of all the assets that God has given us, going back to verses uh, 3, 4, and 5, where he talks about uh, that our spiritual growth comes through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, that this is um, then related to his promises. Promises are words. Promises are communicated through the verbal revelation of God and the written revelation of God. He communicates through words that specify the content. Isn't that interesting? It's not ideas. You will often run into people who say, well, the Bible has ideas that are inspired by God. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the words are breathed out by God, not the ideas. Now, the words communicate ideas, but if you just change the word a little bit, you change the ideas. And so it's very important to understand that God in his, uh, in his sovereignty oversaw the process of revelation so that the words that were in the original documents are the words that pre- precisely communicate what he wants for us. So in verse 12, Paul says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Those These things go back to what he has said from verse 3 down through verse 11, and probably includes even more. It may include uh, what he says in the previous epistle, but uh, contextually it would be uh, from 3 through 11. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things so you know and are established in the uh, present truth. And I have translated this as you see on the screen, even though you have known them, it emphasizes a perfect tense, completed action in past time. It's emphasizing the present results, so it is legitimate to translate it even though you know them, but it's not a present tense. It's you know it now as a result of completed past action. You have been made stable in the past so that you now are stable, and it is by means of the truth, the article is there in English, the definite article is there specifying specific truth, that the word of God is the truth, it's not a truth, it is the truth, and so he's emphasizing the present truth, which is that truth which is related to this dispensation, to this church age, this present body of doctrine that they have been, uh, that they have been, that they have learned and that they have been taught. Now, in order to do any kind of comparison with, with where we're talking about truth, the question that comes up is the question that Pilate threw at Jesus, what is truth? What is truth? How do you know truth? That is a fundamental question. How do we know truth? Knowing something has to do with perception. That's another way of talking about it, methods of perception. But it's not a contrast, as some people have stated it, where it's a contrast between faith versus knowledge. 
faith versus experience because all of the systems of knowledge, all of the systems of perception are really grounded in faith. So you, I break this down two categories. The lower category is the absolute category of divine viewpoint. The upper box is our autonomous or independent systems of perception. Independent means independent of God's revelation. This is knowledge that is developed without reference to God's revelation, without an acceptance of God's authority uh, over his creation to design his creation a certain way. It doesn't mean that you can't come to know truth, lowercase truth, to some degree. You can perceive things such as a water molecule is, com- uh, is made up of two hydrogen and one oxygen. And so the, you combine that together, and you have H2O, and that's water. You can come up with conclusions about uh, mathematics, everything from a simple arithmetic, 2 plus 2 equals 4, to complex uh, quadratic equations, and calculus, and trigonometry, and geometry, all of which was known uh, or much of which was known by the ancients when as uh, we recently went to Egypt and took uh, went to the to, to the pyramids and to see the precision of their uh, of their architecture and of their construction according to very rigid geometrical trigonomet- trigonometrical uh, principles and laws is is phenomenal they they were I've heard it said many times over the years that with the we don't know how they did it with the instruments that they had. So you can learn true truth, or lowercase truth, but you can't learn uppercase truth. And uppercase truth is what helps us to organize the lowercase truth because it's not just facts. You don't have just a whole body of just loose facts floating around. I think Charlie Clough uses the illustration of a uh, string of pearls. And if you take the string out, all you're left with is a bunch of pearls that just kind of roll around on the tabletop. You need to have something that pulls them all together, strings them together so that they are in a, a, a beautiful design. And that is when you go from just facts, individual pearls, to an overall world view and that's when you start getting to if it's biblical to uppercase truth so we have three things we talk about here this system of knowledge this system of perception how do you know what you know its starting point and the method how do you get there so there are three systems rationalism which as it sounds is emphasizes reason. And starting point is the idea that man has certain innate ideas, first principles that he innately perceives, and then he develops everything from that. So, But it is the, a belief, a belief that man is born with these innate ideas and that he has the ability, using logic and reason, to move from uh, from everyday principles to universal absolutes. So that method is, 
it, it uses logic, uses reason. It's in favor of rationality. It is rigorously rational when it is developed by men like Plato in the ancient world, Descartes, and others in the, um, in the post-enlightenment period. Then you have empiricism. Empiricism often is just expressed as experience because we perceive things through our senses, through what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, uh, what we smell. This is, these are our sense perceptions. It's the idea that we're born not with innate ideas but with a blank slate. The Latin phrase was a tabula rasa or a, an erased tablet, as it were. And again, it uses logic and reason in a rigorous fashion to come to conclusions. However, historically, both in the ancient world and in the uh, post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment period, rationalism and empiricism go bankrupt because you're starting with something within God's finite creation and attempting to argue to something that is outside of God's finite creation. And you can't do it. You can't make that leap. And so if you're trying to find meaning in life, reason will leave you bankrupt. And so historically, reason is always attempted first, and then it goes bankrupt, and then you look to empiricism. That goes bankrupt. Then you just throw up your hands and say, you can't know truth. You can't know anything, and that's called skepticism. You can't really know anything for sure. I can't know if God exists. I can't know if the universe really exists. As Descartes would say, I can't even know that people outside of my brain exist. How do I know truth? How do I know anything? And so if reason is bankrupt, empiricism is bankrupt, then you can't live like that. You can't live on skepticism. You can't live on hopelessness. You can't live as if life is meaningless. If you try, you'll end up committing suicide. So the only thing you can do is latch on to something that you think will give your life meaning. It may be drugs. It may be money. It may be success. But it's on some detail of life. And so when you get into this, this detail of life, uh, it's not based on reason. You're just leaping for it. You're grasping after it. And this is called mysticism. It is a form of rationalism, but it's rationalism gone to seed because instead of using reason and logic, it is irrational. So you have an inner private experience. You just know it's true because it's true, and the emphasis is on uh, human ability. Again, in each of these, faith in human ability. But in mysticism, you have a non-rational, non-verifiable presupposition. You just believe it because that's the only way you can make life work, and the alternative is just darkness and depression and despair. And so you have this irrational leap. And that's counterpart to an emphasis in emotion. And that's what we see today all around us. It's people who've rejected everything up here. They have mostly rejected the revelation of God. They can't find answers in reason. They can't find answers in empiricism. So they have to live on the basis of mysticism. And, they, and mysticism is just pure subjectivity. There's nothing objectively real that they can, they can uh, depend on. So they just depend on this, some sort of 
of irrational belief. And that's a fantasy. That's a fantasy. And so they'll gen- generate, historically, you ge- then you generate idols. You generate a f- philosophical religious systems that you think will give you yourself meaning and value. So the the, the um, when you reject rationalism and empiricism, it always leads to irrationality. And just look around. Watch, observe what's going on in our culture. I have a friend who's a lawyer, and he tells me that uh, when they do these special studies with with juries, where they have uh, they observe jurors, they do various things uh, in terms of mock trials, and also then listening to them in the jury room, and listening to how they reach verdicts. He says it's just flat scary. No one can follow a logic chain. Nobody can follow that's on these juries can follow a, a, a syllogism of basically three points to be able to develop a conclusion that is consistent with the evidence. They have no idea. It's all just gut reaction. It's all just emotion. It's because we've got a, a culture that is grounded not in truth anymore, but in many truths, whatever people believe in. That, that's true. If it works for you, that's, that's great. And so it's just pure irrationality. And so it's good if you're a criminal and you can somehow make it look good so that you can pull the wool over people's eyes or your lawyer can, but you can't get to uh, people who really understand and can think through the facts and the data. Now that has a lot of implications. It has implications for any communicator has implications for anybody who's a pastor who's trying to communicate the Word of God. Thank heavens, thank God, we have the Holy Spirit working on people to make it clear to them. Otherwise, it would be absolutely hopeless. But we have God the Holy Spirit, and we have the perspicacity of God's Word that is used to open up people's minds despite the failures of education, the failures of school systems, the failures of parents, to uh, provide and train and teach uh, children the truth and how to think and how to how to reason, and so we um, we have to learn to trust in the Word of God uh, over against whatever the feelings may be, whatever the subjectivity may be, whatever uh, as everybody in our culture seems to be running over a cliff together, running to destroy themselves in irrationality. We can believe in the objective revelation of God, knowing that there's order, that there's purpose, that God cares for us, God's provided redemption, God has told us how to understand reality, all of that is there. It doesn't reject logic and reason, but it doesn't elevate logic and reason as rationalism and empiricism do to an ultimate position. Logic and reason must be uh, minimized to serve the revelation of God and not submit the revelation of God to our limited experience or limited reason. So Paul tell I mean Peter tells him that he's going to repeat these things to them. He's going to he's going to write it down so that they can read it over and over again in the future and be reminded of these eternal truths again and again. And that's been a great thing through the ages, what has been written and what has been preserved. Uh, that 
carry on a man's spiritual leadership and teaching far beyond the limitations of his own of his own life and but peter says you need to go over this again and again and be reminded again and again uh, even when you think you know it all there's always more to learn because we're dealing with the word of an infinite god and so you never get to a point where you should say i really understand this you, you just don't. It doesn't happen. You keep studying, you keep studying, you keep uh, probing the Word, and that's what's necessary in order to grow. The Bible sets itself against every human culture in history by arguing that it is the source of absolute truth. Again and again, we have this claim of absolute truth, and when we find the noun for truth in the New Testament, it is it's the word aletheia, and it's usually with the article. In Greek, you don't talk about the definite article because there's no indefinite article, so you just talk about the article. You shall know the truth, Jesus says. This is a much-abused passage. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Both places use the definite article. It is talking about the Word of God. That is what sets us free from what enslaves us. What enslaves us is our sin nature. What enslaves us are our passions, our sinful passions. And so we have to know the truth of God's word. It starts with the gospel, the gospel that of truth, which tells us who Jesus is as the eternal son of God, what he did, that he came to earth and died on the cross for our sins. And that when we understand that, it first of all sets us free from the tyranny of the sin nature. And then secondly, as we continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, it sets us free from ongoing dominion of the sin nature where we willingly put ourselves back under the control of the sin nature, giving in to its lusts and giving in to its desires. And so the only way we can have real freedom is to know the Word and let the Word of God change us from the inside out. In John fourteen seventeen and 26, we're told in reference to the Holy Spirit that he is the spirit of truth. As we'll see in our study, the Holy Spirit is the one who is the member of the Trinity, who is the agent of inspiration. And we see that in our uh, passage down in verse uh, 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He is the spirit of truth. He is the one who communicates truth. He is the one who oversaw inspiration to make sure that what the writers recorded was absolute truth. And then he oversees the preservation of that truth. Jesus told the disciples in John fourteen seventeen. The spirit of the truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. John fifteen twenty six, talking about the Holy Spirit, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of the truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. 
Now, I got an interesting question this year, Somebody's this last week, rather. Somebody was reading this and looked at the word in English, helper, and connected that to what I've taught about Azer in, uh, in Genesis chapter 315, or, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 2, that the woman would be the helper for Adam. Different word, the, there's a different Greek word used to translate Azer consistently through the Old Testament. It is not parakletos. This has the idea of, of encouragement, one who strengthens, one who enables in that sense, empowers in that sense. Sometimes it's translated the comforter. Uh, sometimes it's translated helper. Uh, sometimes translated encourager. All of those ideas are part of that Greek word parakletos. So this is not uh, in the same word group or or semantic range as Azer in the old in the Old Testament. John sixteen thirteen. However, when He, the Spirit of the Truth, has come, He will guide you. Now here Jesus isn't talking to us through the disciples. He's talking only to the disciples. You'll run into people who will say, well, the Holy Spirit is guiding me into all truth. And your response needs to be, no, he's not. That's not what that passage is talking about. Jesus is telling his disciples who will write scripture and who will pass on the uh, stories about Jesus and what he did and who he is And so the Holy Spirit is going to empower them to do that, especially those who will write Scripture, Peter and James and John, uh, not not James who was the uh, brother of John, not James the writer of the epistle. Uh, But he will enable them to write the Scripture. And we're told, when he, the Spirit of the truth, has come, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Who, who does the Holy Spirit hear it from? From the, from the Father. He is the ultimate originator of revelation. Whatever he hears, showing that the Holy Spirit is submitted to the authority of the Father. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. That's interesting, because the fulfillment of prophecy is one of the things that confirms Scripture. It isn't that which, um, uh, wh- which is the ultimate authority, but God, when God works in human history, he always confirms, gives confirmatory evidence of what he is doing. In John 17, 17, and 19, it's a very important verse. In Jesus' prayer to the Father, he says, sanctify them or set them apart or, or, or build their spiritual life by your is in there, but I added the to make sure we understand it's a definite noun here. Uh, your should take the place of the in good English, but we want to make this point. Sanctify them by your, the truth. Your word is truth. Now that's interesting. The, the second use of truth here doesn't have the article with it. And what that's doing is it is... Uh, it, it, it's assuming you already understand what the truth refers to, and here it is imp- by, by the lack of the articles emphasizing the quality of the truth. And the same is true in verse 19, and for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by means of the truth. So it is God's word that sanctifies us. It's not what we sing. It is not 
what we experience. It is not uh, going to some religious retreat. It's not going through some discipline of prayer where you walk through some sort of mystical labyrinth, which is very popular in some of the more uh, liberal churches today. Going, They're just looking to monasticism for their practices because they've given up on the Bible and they're looking to pagan methodologies. Asceticism is not a path to spirituality. It is a, a path to spiritual depravity. Second Peter one thirteen, Paul goes on to say, yes, I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you. The Holman Christian uh, Standard Bible says to wake you up. That's the idea. Scripture is designed to do something. Scripture isn't just learning a lot of facts. Scripture is getting God's revelation to challenge us, to make us uncomfortable, to teach us how we are to live. Um, John Dunn, who's a well-known, uh, well-known, uh, I think, 17th century uh, poet, he was Puritan background, said that what we go to the Bible to do is like we go to our closet to find something to put on. And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. How many times in Scripture does it say to put off something and to put on something? We are to clothe ourselves with the spiritual virtues, with the fruit of the Spirit, uh, with the Word of God. And so that's, that's the idea. We are to be stirred up. We're motivated to be transformed by the Word of God. We're, we come to be challenged by the Word of God to change how we think so that it will change how we live. And we resist change. But that's why we come. But in a lot of churches where they don't teach the Word in very much depth, one of the reasons they have so many people there is they don't want to change and they're not taught anything that challenges them to transform their lives, transform their thinking, or change. And so uh, Peter goes on to say that he knows that shortly he'll put off his tent, that is his physical body. He knows that, uh, that very, very soon he will be taken to be with the Lord and this is a fulfillment of the prophecies we saw last time in John 21, 18, and 19. And he concludes that little section by saying, I will be careful, I will be diligent to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So I think that's an, an, a reference to what he is writing. Then we come to verses 16 through 18. Verses 16 through 18, and this is where he contrasts the truth that they're established in with the mythology, the fantasies, the legends of the surrounding pagan culture. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables or myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What he's referring to there. As I pointed out the last time, what he develops in the next two verses is he's referencing when Christ is transfigured on what we refer to as the Mount of Transfiguration, revealing his deity, his glory, and revealing who he is as the coming King and Messiah in all of his kingdom glory. They had a foretaste of that uh, in covered in Matthew chapter 17. Verse 17, he goes on to say, For he received from God the Father honor and glory 
when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, an allusion to and a title for God the Father, who said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now what Peter starts off with is telling about what they heard, what they saw. In 1 John 1, 1 through 3, John talks about what they heard, what they saw, what they felt, because they touched, touched Jesus. This is their experience. But the experience confirms something that is prior to experience, and that's the revelation of God. And that's where this goes when we get down into verse 19. So as we look at this, verse 16... For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. So that's the contrast. Are you living your life on the basis of a fantasy? Are you living your life on the basis of secular myths? Are you living your life on the basis of uh, pseudo-Christian myths? That's the challenge here because Satan has been adept at disguising and the truth to uh, deceive people so that they will not... uh, follow God, blinding their minds to to the truth. And so Peter is saying that what he is teaching is the truth. And so it raises the question, how do we know it is true? And this passage gives them in reverse, but the first, the priority is because it is the revealed prophetic word of God. This is seen in verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. It's confirmed by what? It is confirmed through what they saw and what they heard. Experience confirms what the word of God has said. It is not prior to the word of God. And so what we see is this issue of raised here of mythology. So I've created a little bit of a chart here to give you a contrast. But before we get into developing the chart, um, one thing I want to talk about is just what is mythology and the impact of mythology. You can pick up any number of commentaries, especially on the Old Testament, but there are those on the New Testament as well, that try to minimize the miracles of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and say that these are just religious myths. Now, according to a classical study of mythology, a myth is a way of explaining reality with a supernatural explanation that cannot be proven. A way of explaining reality with supernatural things that cannot be proven. By proven in that definition, we mean they can't be confirmed. And the interesting thing is whenever God speaks in the Scripture, whenever God acted, there was always confirmatory evidence. One of the ways in which this mythology thing works, and if you are a student of Old Testament theology as it is uh, practiced, been practiced for the last two or three hundred years. This is pretty typical of the kind of thing you'll run into. In the Bible, in Genesis chapter 32, we have the story of Laban and Jacob. Uh, Jacob had to flee from his parents' home 
because he had deceived his father Isaac and he had taken the birthright from his uh, brother Esau and Esau was breathing threats of murder and so uh, Rebekah helped Jacob get out of town as fast as he could so that he would not be murdered by his brother. And so he goes and he spends approximately 20 years working for his uh, uncle Laban who is just as much of a deceiver and a con man as Jacob is. Jacob learns a lot of uh, lessons in the good sense there. And on his way back to the land, after he leaves with his herds and with his flocks, he's coming down the uh, east side of the Jordan in, in what is now Jordan, and he's crossing the Jabbok River in Genesis uh, chapter 32. And he's got to cross the river, and he apparently seems to have a difficult time according to this way of interpretation. But finally, he's able to cross the river and has a new insight into God. And of course, this is a story that eventually relates to his wrestling with the angel of the Lord. And this is when he meets God face to face and names the place Peniel. Now, critics say, because critics reject uh, inspiration, they reject the authority of God, and their presupposition is that they just borrowed from mythology. And so critics will say that there's a Canaanite mythology, or in Canaanite mythology, there is a river god, and so what happens is that uh, Jacob has to fight the river god, and in their mythology, the river god either decides for you to live or to die, and if you lived, you're blessed by the gods. And so they say, see, what happens is they have this story about Jacob's trouble getting across the river. They want uh, to explain that in some supernatural way, and they end up uh, cleaning the whole story up and getting rid of the multiple gods and just having one God and claiming that it's the one God who is the one that, that uh, Jacob met uh, met there before he crossed the river. Problem is, there's no place in Canaanite literature where you can find such a story. Scholars just make this stuff up. You get over into Isaiah chapter 14, it talks about the fall of Satan, or Ezekiel chapter 28, and their scholars try to argue that these stories also are based on Canaanite uh, myths. Uh, the trouble is there's no such myth that you can tr trace either one of those stories to. So they just make this up, and you'll pick up, and it's so deceptive, you can pick up almost any study Bible, and you will find that in either Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28 or both, You'll find a footnote in the study note saying that this is probably based on a on a myth to depict the uh, challenge uh, with God, something like that. But but there's no evidence for that whatsoever. This just shows how how the the liberal theology of the critics is infiltrated into evangelicalism, and they have a word for this. They call it factitious. Don't you love it? Factitious. Part of it is factual and part of it is fictitious. But it's just a story designed to communicate some universal truth, but it's not to be taken uh, seriously. This has been especially dominant among German liberals. 
And German liberalism was, uh, I just hated studying this stuff when I was in seminary because you're not getting a truth, but you're trying to learn what the false teaching is that comes about. And since uh, we're studying false teaching, this is one of the things that comes along is what's called historical criticism. Now, there was an Old Testament scholar in the mid-20th century who's pretty fed up with this, and he wrote quite a bit on Old Testament theology And in one of his works that was translated into English, it was badly translated. And he's making a comment about one of these uh, episodes, like it wasn't the one with Jacob, but like that. And he is translated as saying, this is not history, it really happened. Now that's a bad translation by somebody who didn't understand the nuances of the German In German, you have two different words for history. There's the word historie, it's spelled H-I-S-T-O-R-I-E, and that refers to the actual events that occurred in the past. There's another word, geschichte, which refers to stories. They didn't actually happen. And so uh, what has happened in the study of Old Testament theology is that most Old Testament scholars of the liberal variety put all of these episodes in the realm of Geschichte and not history. It's just stories. And von Rott was going against that, and so he said this, it, what, this was real history, meaning it really happened. He was trying to go against them, but the translator got the whole episode all, all messed, up, messed up. And you will always run into people who will say that the Bible is just filled with mythology. You, and if you spend a lot of time watching the Discovery Channel or the History Channel or any of these uh, s- series, the mysteries of the Bible or stuff like that, uh, then you'll get really confused because of the, the garbage that they, they bring up. But they always end up making the Bible into some kind of mythology. So with that as sort of a background, let's look at the contrast between revelation as it's taught in the Bible and mythology. First of all, revelation. And revelation originates from the one true living God. He is the one who spoke everything into existence, and he is the one who oversees, maintains, and sustains his creation. There is nothing that any creature can do to destroy God's creation. It ultimately, I mean, he can mess up parts of it to some degree, but God is the one who takes care of everything so we can trust him. We don't have to worry about any kind of climate change. There will be some serious climate change when we get into the tribulation, but it's all under the control of a sovereign God. We have to understand that and trust God and not get caught up that somehow we can throw a lot of money at a problem that doesn't exist. Climate change is nothing more than a socialistic program to move money from the wealthy wealthy nations to those who don't have anything. And it is evil to the max. What we see in Scripture or in this passage is they talk about Uh, Peter talks about when uh, they were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration that they heard a voice from heaven. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, you read down and 
what uh, Moses reminds them of is that they heard the words, the voice of God at Mount Sinai. It wasn't just that Moses went up on the mountain. It wasn't just that Moses went up, he's gone for 40 days, and he comes back and goes, okay, I got, I got 10 rules. We're all going to follow that. Well, why should we follow your, your laws? Hammurabi's got a bunch of laws. Others have a lot of laws. Why yours? And Moses responds basically and says, you heard the voice of God. It wasn't that they heard the thunder. That's later. They heard the words of God. And so he goes back to the fact that there's revelation, that which is given to him on Mount Sinai, but it's confirmed by what they heard. If They knew it was an objective revelation of God. If they had had their digital recorders there, they could have recorded the voice of God. So the voice of heaven tells us that revelation comes from outside of creation. It comes from uh, the creator God who dwells in heaven. second thing we learn in this passage in verse 21 is it's not from the will of man. Man doesn't, has not originated this. The disciples didn't, these were not a bunch of super geniuses who could get together and make up the kind of events that transpired in the life of Christ. You don't have the intricacies of messianic prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus. Nobody could come up with that on their own. If any human being were to sit down and try to write the scriptures, people have tried to rewrite the scriptures. If anyone tried to do it, it would be much different than what we have. I mean, there are most of us here, if we're honest, we'd say there's a lot of sections in here I just wouldn't include because I just don't understand. They're difficult to understand. Other places, they just need more explanation. And then there are other places in the Bible that, well, it really strains our our faith and our credulity to believe that a serpent could talk or that a man can walk on the water. So most people wouldn't put things like that in it. You don't have that in other kinds of uh, of uh, religions. And then in one twenty, he talks about these men were moved by the Holy Spirit. It didn't come from them. It came from God who moved them by the Holy Spirit. A second thing that comes out in this in this section is what's referred to in verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. We live in darkness, but it is God's word that illuminates. It reveals. That's what uh, apocalypto means, the word that is translated revelation. It means to disclose, unveil, enlighten. And so we have the prophetic word uh, confirmed. It is like a light that shines in a dark place. So it is objective light. It doesn't come from uh, inside of us. It originates externally and then enlightens that which is in our minds. Third, there is confirmatory evidence which conforms to revelation. Revelation doesn't conform to the external evidence. It is the evidence that confirms and conforms to revelation. This is in verses 17 and 18 
where we have, as I pointed out last time, the phrase, this is my beloved son, is a direct allusion back to Psalm 1-7, where, or Psalm 2-7, where God the Father announces uh, that Jesus is the, his begotten son, the Messiah is, this is my son. And so this fits these patterns. And then the fourth thing that distinguishes revelation, biblical revelation from myth, is that myth is cyclical, but biblical revelation is linear. What that means is that history is going somewhere. There is, an, there is a future there is an eschatology in the Bible talking about what will happen in the future. We think of eschatology as what will happen in our future. But eschatology, there was when, when God was teaching uh, Adam and his sons and grandsons all the way down to Enoch and down to Noah, everything he said was eschatology. It was all future. And the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament were all future. Many of them have been already fulfilled, but we have this future. Everything is driving to a future. That means history will resolve itself. Uh, you have some uh, aberrations that stole this idea from Christianity, such as uh, Marxism, uh, but Christianity teaches everything, a history that is linear. That's why history is important. History is going somewhere. We have to be students of history. History, as they say, is his story. It's God's story. So it's linear. Now let's look and contrast this with myth. Mythology only works with polytheism. In contrast, revelation is from the one true living God. But mythology always involves multiple gods and goddesses because they are the ones who interact with each other and they cause uh, things to happen on the earth or they replicate things that are happening on the earth. So in all mythology, there is an interplay uh, between the gods of the pantheon. Uh, there's no such... So, no such uh, uh, polytheism in the Bible. The Bible doesn't fit the pattern. And so this always discourages uh, certain scholars because they see that difference, but they can't explain it because their presupposition is the Bible's not any different from any other uh, mythology. Second thing about mythology is that it is filled with irrational concepts like the idea of a true myth. Oh, that's an oxymoron. You, there's no such thing as a true myth. A myth, by definition, cannot be proved true or not true. It's just an irrational belief. And the use of terms like factitious, uh, getting people to believe things that are uh, contradictory and, uh, and destructive and irrational and living on that basis. And then third, its myths are polytheistic instead of, instead of monotheistic. They have multiple gods. And then finally, uh, history is cyclical. 
Greek mythology, Rome, all mythology is cyclical. You just have the same patterns going on and on. It explains the seasons. It explains the the annual events, but it just goes on and on in an unending cycle. It's not uh, going anywhere. So what Peter is saying is that they did not follow cunningly devised fables. They didn't follow myths. They were following something that was headed somewhere. It was headed to the kingdom. Remember when we look at Matthew 17 that Jesus has just prior to this said that that there were those in his presence who would see the kingdom. And then six days later, he's taking James and John and Peter with him up on the mountain, and there Jesus is transfigured in his glory, and then appear uh, Elijah and Moses, and Peter jumps the gun and says, I want to build tabernacles for you, and he's interrupted, and the father says, well, uh, just shut up and listen to my son. But there's something else going on there. The reason he wants to build tabernacles is because when the kingdom comes, that is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, which takes place in the fall. And the Feast of Tabernacles is designed to teach a a couple of things. First of all, the first six days, everybody builds these little Sukkots. It's called a, uh, it's just like a lean-to. And building it, it, you can put a tent out in the yard or something like that, and you live there for six days, and that's to remind the Jews of what went on in the wilderness wanderings and to remind them of how difficult it was. And then on the last day, they can move into their house and live in the comforts of their house, and that is to depict what it will be like when they come into the kingdom. And so the building of these tabernacles was was legitimate. It's just that Peter had his timing wrong. It wasn't the time to fulfill tabernacles at uh, at the time of the transfiguration. It was just giving them a foretaste uh, of what would happen uh, in the future when the kingdom was established. But they see Jesus uh, enshrouded in light, and that has... Uh, messianic kingdom overtones, and we'll get into that as we look at uh, further develop what's going on at the end of verse 19 where it says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That is kingdom imagery. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. So we talk about truth versus myth. Just a couple of things to remind you about is that revelation may be confirmed by evidence. That is what we see, what we hear, what we touch, what we can measure. It's confirmed. It is not on the basis of, okay? Revelation is confirmed by evidence. Evidence, and then secondly, experience or evidence is evaluated by revelation. Revelation is the ultimate uh, criterion. Revelation is not evaluated or interpreted on the basis of experience. Always remember that. We interpret our experience from the Bible. We don't interpret the Bible from our experience. But when you look at what is going on in about 90% of evangelicalism, they're interpreting the Bible from their experience. Just go to some Sunday school class, and the Sunday school teacher is going to say, well... Uh, what did you think about that? 
what, what, how does that make you feel? And they'll start getting, a sub, getting you to think subjectively about the text instead of what it actually means, to interpret it on the basis of, of what you think without any study whatsoever. And the last point is that biblical truth is never in a vacuum. When God reveals something, there is always objective, verifiable evidence eyewitness evidence, what you see, what you hear, what you touch, that confirms what God has done. Look at what uh, Luke says at the beginning of, of Acts. He addresses it to his friend Theophilus. He says, the former account, that would be the gospel of Luke, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, the ascension, after he, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. See, there's the resurrection that occurs, which is doubted by a lot of liberals today, that Jesus just, uh, it, it was just some kind of a ghost. He, he was uh, resurrected in the minds of his disciples. But Jesus gave them objective, verifiable proof confirming the reality of his resurrection. And so the, uh, the message of Peter is not a fable or a myth, it is contrasted to that. It is based on confirmatory evidence, what they heard, that they may have, could have been deceived perhaps. Jesus goes up on the mountain. He's standing with the sun at his back. The disciples come up behind him. They can't see him. They just see uh, the sun behind him, and it looks like some sort of glorious uh, revelation. Okay, so you can explain it that way. But then how do you explain the voice of God, that they all heard the voice of God externally, objectively, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, the exact same thing he said at the baptism of Jesus. And so in Matthew 17, 1 and 2, we're told that after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and he was transfigured before them. And then it says, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, the symbolism there relates to the kingdom, because the kingdom is often portrayed in the Old Testament is a time of light and not darkness. It is a time of the sun rising. It is a time of the morning star. This is the imagery that we have here. The picture of Jesus at the beginning of Revelation 1.14. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like flames of fire. So Jesus is there, and Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking to him. And then Peter jumps the gun and wants to build these tabernacles. And, of course, he gets shut down very rapidly because it's not the time. They're not establishing the kingdom at that point. So his idea of developing the tabernacles is that he's seeing this as the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, and that comes when Jesus establishes his kingdom. It's interesting how 
the disciples were always confused about when he was going to establish the kingdom. And in Matthew 17, 5, while he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud, again, this emphasis on light and brightness, overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And suddenly, and, um, and then in Matthew three seventeen, this is the, it, it just repeats what was said at the baptism of Jesus. And it goes back to Psalm 2, 7 which we have have studied. I want to skip ahead on a couple of these slides. And then in verse 18 of our passage, we heard this voice. So there's confirmatory evidence of what we saw and what we heard uh, when we were with him on the holy mountain. And then in verse 19, Peter says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in dark places until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Now, this is a phraseology and language that was associated with the coming of the kingdom. It looks forward to the second coming. And this language comes out of prophecies in the Old Testament. For example, in Malachi 4.2, where Malachi writes, but to or God says, Rather, Malachi 4.2, but to you who fear my name, the son, S-U-N, not S-O-N, and that reflects the Hebrew accurately, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves, talking about the prosperity of the millennial kingdom. So it is the son of righteousness. He is going to illuminate the world and he will uh, you shall go out and like the sun the rays go throughout the world and illuminates the entire uh, the entire world. So it depicts this as a sunrise. The idea of a star goes back to Balaam, uh, Balaam the uh, diviner in numbers 2417 uh, utters a messianic prophecy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. He's talking about the Messiah. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter. That is a sign of being a ruler or king. A scepter shall rise, or, or a dominion, a kingdom. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. In Luke one seventy eight, I have two translations there, New King James Version and the Holman Christian Standard Bible. This is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist speaking, and he's uh, reading the New King James, through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. That's an archaic word. It means the dawn. When the dawn occurs, the sun is coming up, what do you see? If you're right at the beginning, you look towards the east, and what is illuminated? Venus, the morning star. Okay, so uh, this is a picture. We're in darkness now, but when the sun of righteousness comes, when the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom, then this is the illumination uh, of the world. And so this uh, passage in verse 19, and the morning star rises 
in your hearts. And that phrase, in your hearts, seems rather subjective to all of us, and there is an aspect of subjectivity there. It is a picture of the realization and comprehension of Christ coming in his kingdom, something that only believers will recognize, that they will recognize when the kingdom is being established, and so this becomes uh, clear to them in their hearts. Remember, the heart is often used as the seat of thinking. So it is not talking about something mystical. It's talking about uh, in your mind, in your thinking, you will come to realize that uh, the kingdom is now has now arrived. But at that time of writing and to this day, the kingdom is not here. So you see this light imagery used in verse 9 uh, 19, that is common to various statements about the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of his, of his kingdom. So that brings us to uh, verse 20, because we know this verse that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. This introduces the whole issue of the uh, way and the means of divine inspiration and what that is, and we'll come back to develop that when we come back next next time in our next lesson, which will be in about three weeks after I get back from Kiev. So I will not be here next week on Thursday night, but you will, because we're going to have one of our favorite speakers on Thursday night and the first Sunday I'm gone, and the next Tuesday night, and that will be Jim Myers. So Jim will be here. I'm not going to see him this year. He's there here in the U.S. doing uh, traveling and speaking in churches. They won't be here this coming summer. Uh, They came in the winter instead. And so they will be here next week, and so he'll cover Thursday, Sunday, and Tuesday. And then John Williamson will continue his studies in Philippians, the next Thursday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Albert will cover the pulpit on that second Sunday uh, that I am gone. So please make sure you're here uh, for those uh, who will be speaking. It's uh, never encouraging to show up when there's only one or two people. So uh, look forward to what Jim will teach and what um, some of the things that that John will be teaching as well uh, when he continues his study in Philippians. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to reflect upon the significance of this passage and how we're challenged by revelation to change, to be transformed, to live in light of your word and not in the darkness of the world, Uh, not to be ruled by the passions of our sin nature, but to be transformed, strengthened by God the Holy Spirit, where we are sanctified by means of your word. Father, we pray that you challenge us with these things in Christ's name. Amen.